0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, we have the privilege to have the former bishop himself, Dr. Tom Wright. <laughs> thanks for joining us.
1: How are good you, to be with you. Yeah. good. I- I'm okay, good. thanks. We're very, very busy at the moment We're preparing to move house, which is always a stress. Um, Ooh. This, this is our 16th move of house in 48 years. And I think my wife is wondering which line in the marriage service it was that committed herself to such lunacy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I feel like moving 16 times would make you want to give up the idea of new creation. Just burn everything. Get o- Get it over with and uh, go somewhere else. <laughs> well, but
1: uh, we shall see
0: <laughs> six. How, are you moving far away from where you currently reside?
1: Yes, we're currently in central eastern Scotland and we're going to Oxford, which is, I suppose, about three hundred and fifty or more miles away. But what, we're keeping what? a base we're keeping a base in Scotland because we don't want to leave it and we don't want to be away permanently from the seaside apart from anything else.
0: Gotcha. What has taken you to Oxford
1: this time? Well, I'm retiring from St. Andrews, uh, or mostly I'm going to be very much part time at St. Andrews. And uh, the principal of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, one of the Anglican seminaries there, invited me to come and be a kind of a senior research fellow. That is to say, I'll be around the place I will share in the worship of the seminary um, on a more or less daily basis during the university terms. And I will do a few lectures and sermons for them and be just available for people to talk to if they so wish. Um, So it's kind of light duties, um, but being in the middle of Oxford means easy walking distance to the Bodleian Library and the Hollywood Music Room and a few decent pubs and various things like that. So um, there there are lots of compensations, even though being that far south.
0: Yeah, well, uh, best wishes on the move. I've moved a few times and... I hope never to do it again, and so I hope this is a good, uh, a good move for you.
1: Yeah, well, let's see. let's see.
0: Yes, um, okay. So when I was in seminary myself, I was given the advice that you find uh, one theologian and let that be your person and just read everything they've written, and I've, I've kind of adopted you, but the thing is you've written so much, it makes it very difficult to keep up with that. And I often find myself in conversation with someone who says, Luke, I know that you are a big fan of N.T. Wright. Uh, where do I start? Uh, and I'm always perplexed as to what answer to give. If, uh, if you were to coach someone on how to answer that question of what is the best intro to Tom Wright's work, what, what book would you recommend?
1: It, it depends what sort of interest they have. Um, I would like eventually to be known as somebody who has helped people to read the New Testament and to get out of it what is there for them to get out of it. And obviously, for the ordinary person in the street or in the pew, I would hope that my series, The New Testament for Everyone, Matthew for Everyone and so on, will do exactly that. So treating that series as, as a whole, as a block. Um, I would say um, that's as good a place for an ordinary person to start. But, of course, there are many people for whom a series like that simply raises far more questions than it solves. Um, People who have done quite a bit of Bible reading and want to know now, where do I go forward with this? And then at the kind of medium level, I would say surprised by hope and simply Jesus. Um, But at the academic level, I would say the New Testament and the people of God. Mm -hmm. uh which then of course launches my big series and you know since writing the gifford lectures which is i think what we're talking about history and eschatology now um i i really do think that in some ways that draws together an awful lot of what i've been trying to say but at the same time uh, puts the whole thing in a new perspective and i'm kind of excited because you'd have thought at the age of 70 I would be kind of rounding things off and um, putting it all to bed and putting my feet up. But with that book, I really feel I've started a new chapter, and I have no idea where it's going next, but it's been enormously exciting. So I think the new book is a sort of introduction um, f- to to what I think the whole thing is about with Jesus and the New Testament in the middle of it. But back from that, I would still say the New Testament and the people of God. That's mm-hmm. That's the book I wished that all my students would read before we actually began the course because there were so many things which I discovered over 20 years of teaching that my students didn't know about the New Testament's world and so on, which they needed to know in order to be able to dive in. And so, that that's why I wrote that book.
0: Hmm. Outstanding. And as you, your answer, uh, you know, clarified, you do see yourself as writing at different levels for different people. There's some of us uh, who just need the intro- introduction to the New Testament, and so your uh, your New Testament series is very helpful. Actually, I was just in our church's Ladies Bible Study, and they're going through the book of James, and they're using your uh, James for Everyone book, which I think is oh, working uh, out gr- great for uh, them. They're loving it down here in Austin, Texas, and then you have <laughs> your your more pop-level stuff, And then you have your your technical academic stuff Uh, when you find yourself kind of vacillating between those different types of writing. What is um, I know each of them have a special appeal to you, but what um, what is it about writing at different levels that you find so compelling to do it over and over again? (laughs)
1: Well, uh, it's a funny thing. The reason one writes books is partly because you wish there was something out there to say what you want to say to people who seem to need it. And if there isn't, then you write it yourself. Um, And then if people like it and say, please do us another one, but now on this or that, then why not? Because I enjoy writing. Um, uh, Writing is a funny business. It can be difficult. I've just today finished writing a lecture, which I have to give in New York in a couple of weeks time, three weeks time. And uh, to begin with, that was really hard work and i'm not sure why it may just be that because of moving house i've got all sorts of other things going on but i do enjoy writing i like seeing words appear and sentences being crafted and using different images and seeing where they develop into and so on so um uh, and and there are different conversations that one is involved with and i've been fortunate to be able to have a lot of those conversations in print rather than just in in conferences with other scholars and so on um so um I don't know. I think uh, like some others of my generation, I have watched the next generation, my my own children as well as my students, um, growing up with different questions to the ones that I had. And I don't want to leave my children feeling, oh, well, dad was muttering about all that stuff and we have no idea what that was about. We're just living our own lives um, and he can mumble in his beard and that's fine. We, we kind of respect him, but that's it. I really want to say, no, sorry, this is important. You've got to engage. And so I've tried to write with my own family in mind, as well as the, the countless others who they, as it were, represent. And I would love to think, even my grandchildren, as they get a little older will um, start to pick up one or two of these funny things that grandfather has written and see, see what it's all about.
0: Do you get all of your kids? To, I know you have, uh, you have an academic, you have at least one kid who's an academic, right? Mm.
1: Yes. My oldest son, my oldest son is an academic. Julian, um, he's a historian. He, he's um, a specialist in nineteenth and early twentieth century France and French political thought, and so on. Mm-hmm. And he, I think, I say this in the preface to History and Eschatology. He read quite a bit of that and gave me um, some really good feedback. Um, there's a whole chapter on the nature of history, chapter three of that book. Mm-hmm. And uh, the room I'm sitting in here, um, there was a wonderful day earlier this year when we had Kerry Newman, who was then the editor of Baylor University Press, um, staying in, in, the, in the house as our guest. And we were sat around this dining table that's behind me here. And uh, Julian, my son, was reading the chapter on history and Kerry was reading the chapter on resurrection. And I was kind of working with them both and going forward. And and they were both giving me their robust exchanges. Uh, Hey, Tom, you can't say this. And and Mm -hmm. Julie would say, Dad, I really think you should cut this paragraph. And What you really need to say is such and such. That was just one of those golden moments, which I shall always treasure, uh, where we have this three-cornered. A fun conversation and and julian has been really helpful in a number of other ways um, because he knows the world of basically the enlightenment and the european context of that and the french revolution and so on and forwards from there in a way that i've never been able to know so he's been able to push various books and articles in my direction and say you really need to read this to catch up with that and so on mm-hmm. and i i If I had five more sons, I wish they would all study different periods of history because I'd like to to stand on their shoulders. But, you know, this is a great gift to me.
0: That's great. So at least you have one son who is reading all your stuff, even if your grandkids haven't gotten to the age in which they're going to start doing
1: it. I don't think Julian has read all my stuff. He's read quite a bit, <laughs> and he's got, he's got a pretty shrewd idea of where his father is. Um, and my youngest son, Oliver, um, is training for or just starting to train for ordination. So he is now catching up with quite a bit of my stuff from a quite other angle. Um, yeah. And uh, so that that's, that's fun as well. My two daughters, um, they've read bits and pieces over the years. Um, I don't think any of them have read everything that I've written, but then I sometimes feel as So oh, I haven't read everything I've written because I'm, why would I do that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. My, my oldest daughter is 11 years old and she was looking for a book that she uh, needed to get some reading time in for her uh, academic requirements in school. And I said, you know, I've got a book. You want to read dad's book? And she goes, no, I want to read something exciting. And
1: so, um, you know, yes, that's right. They put you in your place. Yes, Um, sir. Yes. But but one one can hope that in the fullness of time. I mean, nobody ever told me what fun having young adult children would be. Um, I suppose I thought they would kind of grow up and go to college and and leave and Mm -hmm. we'd see them at Christmas and maybe a couple of other times in the year. And we'd phone up and that would that would be that. Um, But actually, to have one's children become friends. Um, something which I had not expected, and uh, to share uh, intellectual quest and spiritual quest with them, um, this is an unlooked-for gift. And uh, you know, they don't follow the ways that I necessarily would, but that's fine. We can we can talk about that and play golf mm-hmm. together and all sorts oh, of stuff.
0: That's beautiful. And, and, um,
1: and, and music, particularly music, is very important in our family. And uh, my two sons have both been. Um, semi-professional singers in their time with um, uh, various uh, big choirs in Britain so uh, that's been really exciting
0: that is great. My, my father is a retired uh, psychology professor, and he, right. okay. he'll, listen, he'll listen to the podcast, and he'll give me feedback, and he'll come at all these ideas from his angle, and just as exciting as it is probably for you to have the conversations with your kids, it's as exciting for me <laughs> to have those conversations with my father. That's, so uh, it, is, it
1: is cool. truly a of, grace. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, yeah. We've, got, we've got a book that we need to discuss. Uh, the title is History and Eschatology, and it comes from a lecture Uh, about an hour and a half up the road from me in Austin, Texas, in Waco, Texas, at Baylor University. And as any good Texan, I must first ask about your experience while you're in our beloved state of Texas giving this lecture series.
1: Well, I, I love Texas, um, uh, and we have many friends there. I've got friends in San Antonio. I've got friends in Houston. Certainly got friends in Waco. We've actually, my wife and I have got relatives in Dallas and Austin. So um, sure. uh, we've been to Texas many times, and uh, my wife and I both have lovely big uh, cowboy hats, which people have given us when we've been there, uh, and we treasure that. I'm looking forward to being back there next year sometime. I'm doing some lectures there. But the original lectures for um, history and Eschatology were given in Aberdeen in Scotland, the Gifford Lectures. Oh. Um, but the book is the book is published by Baylor University Press.
0: Oh, OK. Um, yeah, I misunderstood.
1: Yeah. But uh, no, um, and, and that is simply because the former director, Carrie Newman, took me aside at SBL two or three years ago uh, and basically made it quite clear to me that he wanted to publish the Gifford lectures. And indeed, he came over to Aberdeen to to listen to some of them um, while I was delivering them. And so from from the get go, it was going to be this was coming to Baylor. But then as well, um Before I gave the Giffords, about I think a year before, I was in Houston doing some lectures at Houston Baptist University, and I went and did a one off lecture for Mark Lanier at the Lanier Mm -hmm. Theological Library on the outskirts of Houston. And uh, I did a a single lecture, which was a kind of a foretaste of the Giffords. Mm -hmm. So, um, the the, the the Giffords do have their some some of their roots in Texas as well as some of their fruits, even well, though the main thing is actually given in Aberdeen.
0: Well, that makes me feel a little better and one of Mark Lanier's lawyers that works for him is a member of our church. So I feel like the connections are strong enough for for us to continue with this interview then uh, even if they weren't delivered originally in Texas there's um, no, no okay. not. not- Okay, so p- part of the, uh, the question uh, in, in this book is about um, natural theology, which for some of my audience is going to be a, uh, a new subject matter. And so if you could give sure. the, um, you know, like the, the freshman 101 introduction to, to the subject matter before we jump into the conversation, I think that would be a great level set for, for my listeners.
1: Okay. Um, the, the phrase natural theology has meant different things to different people down the years, but broadly speaking, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. a project which says, can we look at the world of nature, hence natural, the, the, the trees and the flowers and the sky and the stars and the sea and, and the, and the mind of human beings? And can we from that alone work our way up to God? In other words, This emerges, the way we we understand natural theology today emerges from big questions in the 18th and 19th century, where people said, we're fed up with all that church tradition. We think you guys were just making it up. Um, We think that this Christianity thing is just a power play to gain social power and control over us. So um, we're going to disbelieve it. And the Christian theologians say, okay we're going to put to one side all the kind of supernatural stuff, whether it's the Bible or the miracles of Jesus or whatever it is. And we're going to show you that we can reason our way up to God, um, starting from uh, starting from scratch and putting all that stuff to one side. Um, and different people have tried different ways of doing that. You look at the world and you say, "Well, somebody must have made this world. It's just amazing the way it all fits together and works, and so on." Uh, and and you look at um, the human mind and you say, "How come we humans actually think the way we do and reason the way we do and?" How come we have the ethics and morals that we do? Um, it must be because some being calling God has put them into our heads. Unfortunately, this both does and doesn't work as it stands, as that project has pushed Jesus off the stage and push pushed the Bible off the stage as though, to quote them, would be special pleading. So what I'm trying to do is to say, actually, Jesus was a figure of real human history. That is to say, he belongs in the world of, quote unquote, nature, just as mm-hmm. much as anyone else does. So let's actually bring Jesus on stage well you know no holds barred but put him in his own world his own first century jewish world and let's see what that does to the shape of the question and to the possible answers we can give it there you are i'm not just giving you the 101 i'm pushing into the substance of the book itself but you hear what i'm saying
0: yes no i i think that's a that's a good introduction and so there there's been these some options that say let's just divide the worlds let's divide our world and the world of of the god world Uh, There's the other option, I guess this would be the Stoic option to say that that God is in all things, everything is divine, and then there's the option of, well, this whole world is going to be disposed of anyway, and so it doesn't really matter, and I guess that would be the the Platonist uh, argument?
1: The, the Platonist might say that. The Platonist would vary as to whether the present world is actually going to be disposed of. Um, but, but certainly the aim of the Platonist is to leave this world and to have their soul go to be in the, uh, some heavenly realm, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the Epicurean says it's all just random atoms bouncing off each other. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and when you die, you die. So there's nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but the Jewish, Jewish and Christian world looks very different.
0: Mm-hmm. and and you focus on uh, the idea of of what Sabbath and what uh the temple are saying in this Jewish Christian worldview and how there is this uh, in the Christian worldview the inauguration of what these things are telling us so um, uh, stuff was a fascinating part of the book to me uh the temple and Sabbath are introducing this new creation to us um, for some temples, just it, it was this old building. Sabbath is just a, that we don't work. But you're arguing that it has this much m- much more robust picture of new creation. Can can you help us get into that yeah. perspective?
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, And this is something which many New Testament scholars haven't really caught up with. And I've only really been wrestling with it for the last 10 years or so, although I was aware a lot earlier than that, that the temple was really important, but I didn't always see exactly how. Um, And For much biblical scholarship and for much Western Christianity, the temple is like, well, it's this big Jewish building where they went and offered sacrifices, and we don't do that anymore. And Jesus said it was all um, ripe for destruction, so we don't need to worry too much about that. And so we've missed out on what the temple was actually doing and being, which in the Old Testament and in the Jewish tradition, which is retrieving those biblical themes, the temple is not only the place where God has promised to come and live, But the temple is the place where heaven and earth are joined together, and the joining together of heaven and earth is what Genesis 1 itself was all about, that God created this this bipartite world where heaven and earth are not two spheres to be pulled apart, as in Plato, but actually two different spheres, so we're not into Stoicism or Pantheism here, but two different spheres which are designed to work together and eventually to become one um, and with humans at the middle of it now if you read genesis one like that and many many have done this and many jewish scholars have been saying this for years and years and it goes way back in the jewish tradition genesis one is itself the creation of a temple and um, the heaven and earth reality with an image in the middle of it that's a temple so once you recognize that, then you see that the narrative arc, interestingly, runs from Genesis 1 all the way to Exodus 40, where um, the purpose of the Israelites coming out of Egypt is so that they can be the people in whom the creator God comes to set up his home. And the tabernacle is an advance sign and foretaste of that eventual coming together of heaven and earth, which the creator God intends, so that the temple, when Solomon builds it, which is the lineal descendant, if you like, of the tabernacle, Mm -hmm. is a further sign that God intends to complete the work he did in Genesis 1, in other words, not only to rescue humans, but to rescue the project, the creation project, and to bring heaven and earth together at last. So, when you take all of that and run it right through ezekiel and malachi and so on you land up with the new testament where in john's gospel particularly but actually also in matthew mark and luke um, the temple and jesus relation to the temple is foregrounded and highlighted and emphasized and we discover to our amazement that john particularly is saying it very explicitly jesus himself is the true temple he is where heaven and earth come together. The word became flesh and tabernacled temple came to dwell in our midst and from there all kinds of other things flow out and obviously we've plunged here into gifford lecture chapter five um so um i could go on all night about that
0: well uh, we are going to go on for more about that so the idea is in genesis there's the beginning of the story uh tabernacle Mm -hmm. temple are all pointing to that this is the the connection of heaven and earth being brought together uh the prophet habakkuk who talks about how the glory of the lord shall fill the earth is that yeah, is that yeah. like foretaste language of how eventually what is localized will be?
1: Absolutely. And you get that in Habakkuk. You get it also in Isaiah 11 and elsewhere. You get it, interestingly, in an odd passage in Numbers chapter 14, where the spies come back from the land and say, we're not going in there. They've got giants there. It's terrible. Um and God gets really mad at the Israelites and says, um, okay, you just don't believe my promises, but let me tell you this, the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, what's Why does he say that there? The answer is, it's not a big deal for me to come in and live with you in the land. I'm going to live in the whole world. And there's a sort of sense of the extension of the Holy Land into the whole world. And that's, of course, exactly what you get in Romans 8 where the whole world becomes God's holy land, the inheritance of his people, the land which is to be inhabited by the Spirit, if you like, until First Corinthians 15, um, God will be all in all, um, getting to the goal that the Stoic thought you could get to with pantheism, but as the eschatological filling with God and the world still different, but God filling the world with his glory, with his splendor.
0: Now, now, some today would have the idea that, you know, God is in everything. If you, if you look somewhere, you're going to find God because God is in all things. How, now, now maybe that isn't fully like the Stoic perspective of pantheonism, uh, but what would the nuance be of new creation and God's presence being in all things that's not the same as that?
1: The problem with pantheism and with its sort of younger cousin panentheism, that God is in everything, maybe he's not actually everything, is that neither of them can give you a proper critique of evil or a proper solution to the problem of evil. That in pantheism, in stoicism, as you see in in Seneca, in, um, uh, in um, Epictetus, people like that, if you don't like the way the world is, the door is open and you're free to leave. In other words, there's no solution. So just go and kill yourself and fall on your sword. Um, and actually, for a, a genuine Stoic, that's tough because sooner or later, the whole world is going to be recreated and come back. And everything is going to happen just the same way as it did before. Um, and and that's, that's a very terrifying thought if you've had a bad time in the present <laughs> world. But, but, but the only, so the only solution to evil is shrug your shoulders and stick your sword in and and that's it um for the, For the Epicureans, of course, there isn 't a problem of evil because everything is just random, and the appearance of meaning is just that it 's it's an appearance, um, so n- not a problem for the platonist the uh, The solution to the problem of evil is escape, make sure that your soul lands up in heaven, but for the Jew and for the Christian who believe that the world is a good world and yet radically spoilt. There has to be a different kind of solution. So, there is a redemptive solution for which the Exodus is the back marker, and in Christianity, obviously, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the the ultimate instantiation. And through that, and only through that, then... God's own presence fills the world in a new way. And, and the infilling of the world with the spirit is quite a different thing from the generalized, diffused presence of God in pantheism or panentheism. And here's one way in which it's particularly distinct. And probably I've just been writing a paragraph about this in the lecture that I'm going to do in New York in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so you, you, you get to hear it first. Um it's about the way in which if the spirit is already in some sense filling the world, then what the spirit is doing as often as not is grieving, is lamenting. Hmm. If the spirit is in northern Syria or Iraq right now, then the spirit is grieving and lamenting because there are Turkish airstrikes just hmm. starting um, Uh, I I, uh, dare to say if the spirit is in the House of of Parliament in Westminster or maybe in Donald Trump's White House now, maybe there's a lot of the spirit grieving as well because all sorts of things are happening which are chaotic. So pantheism uh, dulls down the problem of evil, but the infilling by God's spirit actually heightens it and says, no, God is grieving over the horrors and the plight of the world Uh, and god is going to deal with that in the same way that he dealt with it through the death and resurrection of jesus but the application of that by the spirit is totally different from the pantheist who is just going with the flow and god is in everything and everything is in god so let's just relax and hang out and do whatever comes naturally and so the, the christian is called to be a spirit person within the world where God wants to be present as lament, as grief, and that is a huge and costly vocation, which is radically different from what you find in the other worldviews that I've mentioned. Yep,
0: yep. Uh, so, so, temple uh, is the, the inbreaking inbreaking. this is the localized presence of God. Uh, resurrection obviously brings that to new life, to, the, the, next, um, the next iteration of what God's doing. But just as temple is to space, Sabbath is to time.
1: Yes, that, and that's fascinating. I first explored this in an extra chapter in my book, Scripture and the Authority of God. Um, I wrote that extra chapter about 10 years ago. Um, there's a chapter on Sabbath and a chapter on monogamy uh, as case studies in how scriptural authority actually works. And there I tried out the argument, which I've now filled in a lot more. Uh, On the basis of lots of Jewish writings about the Sabbath, that the week by week Sabbath for the Jew is like a set of signposts pointing forward to the age to come so that that great um, uh, Pharisaic Rabbi Shammai, uh, according to the Jewish tradition, said that this is the reason you don't even kill a fly on the on the Sabbath, because in the age to come, all species will live in harmony because that's what isaiah 11 says about the age to come so that the sabbath is the genuine anticipation of the age to come so the line of sabbaths imagine a a line of signposts stretching back as far as the eye can see every week you have an advanced foretaste of the age to come and that's how many many jews to this day celebrate shabbat and and that that's a wonderful thing um But then in the New Testament, the extraordinary thing happens that Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm -hmm. And the time is fulfilled means that the, the, the great promise in the book of Daniel, chapter nine, where he says it's not just 70 years of exile, it's 70 times seven. It's a kind of a Sabbath of Sabbaths of Sabbaths of exile. But then finally, the time is fulfilled. And the answer is you don't put up a sign saying this way to New York in Times Square because you're there. You're right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And that sense of of being um, in the arrival mode is completely different then from saying, OK, let's just put up the signposts a bit more because one day it's coming. So the, the, in the New Testament, very interestingly, uh, whenever Paul, for instance, summarizes the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is missing which is one of those really interesting, quirky things that people say, oh, well, that was a bit of old Jewish legalism. No, not at all. It wasn't a bit of old Jewish legalism. That was a bit of eschatological, practical teaching, which has now reached its goal. And it is set aside as a good thing, which is now fulfilled, rather than a silly old bit of law, which we who don't believe in law, but rather believe in grace, can do without. So we... Um, particularly Western Protestants, I think, have tended to see Jesus' um, overriding of the Sabbath laws in terms of, um, oh, we don't believe in law, we believe in grace. That's not it at all. It's because the genuine ultimate Sabbath has now arrived.
0: Mm -hmm. I I like how you say in the book that it's not an issue of legalism, but inauguration, that it has been inaugurated in in the person of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I will give you rest— that probably yes. would have been heard in the first century as this is an inauguration comment about Sabbath being embodied.
1: It, it's very interesting. Yes, that that passage in Matthew eleven comes within various discourses which have to do with the same point Ex- exactly. So, yeah. So uh, um, I, just, I, I, I'm just don't go away. I'm just going to plug in this phone because I think the battery is running down. So um, let me just. Quickly do this.
0: You know, you take okay. That happened to me last week. I had a, uh, my computer died during the <laughs> podcast. So, uh, it happens to great minds think alike. You know, we, uh, we have that happen to both of us. Um,
1: okay, good, good.
0: Okay, so uh, the idea of Sabbath, it's been inaugurated in Jesus. For those who continue to practice some sort of Sabbath-like um, existence now, in light of Jesus' inauguration of this day, how should it be understood then?
1: Well, um, it it seems to me there's every reason to suppose that since we still live in creation the way it is, there is a natural rhythm to creation, which is a God-given natural rhythm and which um, is wise to observe in some way or other. Now, of course… Like many Anglican clergy, when I got ordained, I faced this straight off because Sunday is the busiest day of the week. Yep. You're pretty busy the rest of the week, but if you're going to be up and about taking services eight and nine and 11 and six or whatever, plus making sure the organist's doing his stuff and the Sunday school is running all right, um, this is not a day of rest. So most clergy will say, I'll take a day some other time in the week. Um, and that's a wise thing to do. But you've got to be flexible about it. Um and in, So, in particular, the idea that still obtains in some quarters that Sunday itself must be kept as a day of rest, Th- this, this is kind of residually odd once you read the New Testament with those first century Jewish eyes. Um, and, of course, for all the early Christians, um, Sunday was an ordinary working day. They couldn't just take Sunday off work if you had a job. Sunday was, was the beginning of the working week. Um, many early Christians were slaves. They couldn't suddenly say to their masters, Oh, by the way, I'm following this person called Jesus now. So you won't see me around on Sunday. Well, tough guys, you, you know, you, you jolly well turn up or you'll lose your job or you get beaten or something. Yep. Um, so, so, um, Sunday observance, though I think a healthy thing for society in all sorts of other ways, um, I don't think was ever envisaged as a necessary part of genuine Christian discipleship in the early church.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that uh, much of these observations are understood best when read in reverse, when, when we go back and read these uh, ideas after the fact, that maybe the, the early audience would have been able to pick these things up as, uh, as we are today. Can you explain how uh, some might hear that and go, well, are you saying that they didn't think this, and so we're kind of making this up after the fact— But uh, or or maybe that we're understanding this better now because we have time. How would we understand that?
1: I think one of the things which is a real blessing in our day and age is that I really believe we understand the world of the first century Jews better than most previous Christian generations, because we have. Better texts, better archaeological evidence, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've got good editions of Josephus, we've got a lot of scholarship that has been studying the first century intensively, because as you, I'm sure you know, but maybe your listeners don't, um, in AD 132 to 135, there was a major Jewish revolt against Rome, um, nearly 70 years after the earlier one, 66 to 70, which resulted in Jerusalem being destroyed. And the would-be messiah of the 130s, Bar Kokhba, was captured and killed in 135, and that was the end of the revolt. But it wasn't just the end of the revolt. It was the end of an entire way of being Jewish, because the rabbis after that, such as were left, because you know lots and lots of revolutionary Jews were massacred, some of the rabbis then said, We're just not going to do this kingdom of God stuff anymore. We've been, you know, there's crazy people have been reading books like Daniel, and they've been talking about the kingdom of God, and they've been calculating when it's going to happen, and we're just not going to do that anymore, Um, so that by the time you get into the third century or the fourth century, the Christian teachers and leaders who are uh, thinking things through and writing the big books and, 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 and arguing theological points in councils, they are not in touch with a Jewish world that corresponds to the Jewish world of the first century, the Jewish world of Jesus and Paul. Um, they are not thinking in terms of Uh, temple theology of Sabbath eschatology of the way that the image of God works within the idea of the temple. And so they're trying to use these biblical themes in different ways. And this is a major problem in terms of, um, in terms of how Uh, We read then the 4th and 5th century people writing about Christology, for instance, that that, that I want to affirm what they did and what they said, but the way they argue it seems to me again and again to miss the point of what's actually in the New Testament, and they're often in danger of using the New Testament um, to prop up arguments that they're making on other grounds rather than wrestling with the New Testament itself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that's a real problem, because people sometimes say to me, you're not telling me that you actually know um, what the New Testament meant better than, you know, Chrysostom or, or uh, Basil the Great or Augustine or somebody. And I say, well, in some ways, no, I don't. But in other ways, yes, I think we do, not just I, but those of us who study intensively the world of Second Temple Judaism, I think have an inside track into all sorts of themes in the New Testament, which those who ignore that world will ignore at their peril. Mm-hmm.
0: So we're learning more, we're understanding more uh, about history, and I think that gives us a picture of what is to come. Uh, you have this uh, this line about what resurrection does uh, for reality now and also how we can understand uh, today and the future. Let me read this uh, for my listeners. The resurrection, in fact, assures us that that all that we have known in the present creation, all that we have glimpsed of glory and wisdom and creational goodness, will indeed be rescued from corruption and decay and transformed into the new mode the Creator always intended. Uh, So, the idea of resurrection is that it changes and it gives us this picture of where we're going. In the same way that the temple and Sabbath give us a picture of what is to come the new creation, uh, resurrection is the same thing. And in in the book, you say the highest way of of knowledge is, and the most complete form of knowledge, is love. How does love and the resurrection help us to understand new creation?
1: Wow. Great question. And actually, this is what (laughs) the lecture that I'm doing in New York in three weeks' time is all about. It's called Loving to Know. Um, That's what they ask. This is the first things lecture. They call it the Erasmus lecture, um, which I'm really looking forward to. Okay, it goes like this. When God makes the world and puts humans into the world as his image bearers, He intends humans to stand at the threshold between heaven and earth, to reflect his wise stewardship into the world for which they need to know and love him and reflect the praises of creation back to God for which they need to love and know the world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we in the Western world have tended to think in terms of knowledge being either Objective, We just know this as a fact with a capital F or subjective. This is just how we feel it. But in fact, love is the rich engagement which transcends that objective subjective divide and says, no, we, we, we come to know and we pay attention to and we delight in whether it's a tree or a star or another person or a dog or, or a chair or whatever it is. We, we relish it for what it is, we thank God for what it is, and we seek to be for that object or person or whatever, what, what God wants us to be. And that is the mutuality of love within which, and only within which, a genuine knowledge can emerge, rather than the rather brittle, flat knowledge which so many in our world have imagined. Now, the problem with that so far is that the world is full of darkness and evil and horror as we know and so as i said before one of the modes that love has to take in the world is the mode of grief of lament of sorrow which is fine that too is part of love and you know something better when you have grieved with it and over it than when you just look from a distance and say oh they seem to be having a bad time now let's forget it but here's the thing god gives creation to us as a gift of love, so that our knowledge of creation is meant to be a love which is in response to God's creative love. But then in the resurrection, what the resurrection of Jesus says is that God is reaffirming the goodness of creation and that all the things that we saw in creation which were wonderful and were signals of God or signposts to God even though they seem to have let us down because of darkness and sin and death and horror, etc. No, God is reaffirming the goodness of creation. And this is why, of course, post Enlightenment Western thought, excuse the clock striking in the background, this is why post Enlightenment Western thought doesn't want the resurrection on stage at any price because that would imply that God is reaffirming the goodness of creation whereas the Enlightenment wants to say we're the ones who can do that. We're the ones who can solve creation's problems. So so this, this is why Wittgenstein says it is love that believes the resurrection. He said, I'm not sure exactly what he had in mind there. That's a very interesting line. But the way I interpret that is that when you understand that Jesus' resurrection is not, oh, this is just a quirky thing that happened to Jesus because God was specially pleased with him or something. But no, this was where it was all going. This is the unveiling of the ultimate gift of love, which is the new creation. And so the answer to that is love. And here you see in the Western world, we hear the word love and we think romantic subjectivity. And so we think of you know. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, and the answer is no. That's not good enough um, because somebody else can say, "Well, he doesn't live within mine," and and you're probably talking garbage anyway. Um, so we we need we need the love which is answering the gift of God in resurrection. And that actually then flows out into all the arguments. You see, we're still skewered on this post-enlightenment dilemma between the rationalist and the romantic, where the rationalist says, and I have some people in mind I could name and you probably know who I'm talking about, I'm going to start from square one and I'm going to argue from step by step by step. And to the point where Jesus rose from the dead and if you don't believe it, you're either stupid or wicked or both. Um and then the romantic says, No, 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 don't 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 give me all those horrible rational arguments. Um, this is something that you just gotta feel and you've got to sense how it goes. And and neither of those really work. And so When you see the the resurrection as the revelation of the ultimate love in creation, then all sorts of things start to make sense. And as C.S. Lewis said, you believe not because you can work it all out, but because in the light of that, you can see everything else. And that's Mm -hmm. ultimately the kind of argument that I think one has to make.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. And so it's not... The romanticism which says i just feel this way i feel this in my heart it's not just the rationalism that says i can make an argument for it uh, the resurrection has something that opens your eyes to see everything new and everything different that's that's
1: but the point is that it's not a private truth you see so many people want to say oh, well that's true for you but of yeah. course it isn't true for me because i'm a scientist or whatever the answer is no um It does open your eyes in a new way, but the thing it opens your eyes to is to see that all along creation really was, as Manley Hopkins says, charged with the grandeur of God and that the signals of transcendence, as people have called them, or as I call them, that the broken signposts in the created order really were telling the truth, even though by themselves, they couldn't, as it were, clinch the deal. So that the fact of, Love and beauty and justice and all the rest of them, um, which so many people have thought these are signs of God's presence, and yet they seem to let us down. The resurrection says, no, they really were signs of God's presence, and this is how the whole thing is being solved and has Mm. been solved. So, then you can look back at creation with gratitude and say, we can trust those messages because they have been retrospectively validated by what God did when he raised Jesus.
0: Mm, That's good. That's good. And now I see, I mean, I felt this in the book as well, but now I see what you're talking about. Like, this is a new chapter of what you're doing, and this is, uh, this this book, yeah. this this project has opened you up for so much more. And so, uh, I mean, partially, I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm partial, but I would love for you to make uh, a pop-level version of this book. I think that would be <laughs> really helpful for... It's funny how uh,
1: many... Many of my friends keep on lining up further writing projects for me to do. This is so kind of you. I mean, I have to have have to find something to do in my retirement. That, that's
0: that's what friends like me are for. I'm I'm here to help you to do that. But okay, I know it's late over there, but I got three quick questions for you, and then just rapid fire sure. qu- questions. So the other day, uh, I'm at my house, and I get a text from a friend says, "Jesus proclaimed the gospel." before he was resurrected and how if the gospel is that jesus rose from the dead for to forgive us from sins how could he proclaim that before he was resurrected and my text was this is why you need to read nt right uh and then they go well tell me what it is and so if you have to respond to that in a text message how do you respond to that answer this is your first question
1: I would respond by saying that the word gospel goes back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 40, where the good news is that God is coming back to be king, to rescue his people, and to transform the whole creation. That is the gospel message. And, of course, that takes particular form and specificity with jesus but when jesus came in announcing the gospel of god the message was this is the time for god to become king and all those other things are contained within that Mm -hmm. but retrospectively when you look back from say ad 35 by saying jesus of nazareth who was crucified has been raised from the dead and he is the world's true lord which is one way of summarizing the early christian gospel you are saying in footnotes as it were in accordance with Israel's scriptures, meaning all that stuff. And this is how Israel's God has come back to be king. So it's go back to Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52 and all will become clear.
0: That's good. That's good. And don't say Isaiah like us Americans do say Isaiah. And then I feel like there's more good news in your message. Okay. Second question. You, uh, You referenced John 1. And... Like, I might hypothetically be working on a sermon series from John chapter 1, and I stumbled upon uh, a notion that some scholars believe that John 1 might be kind of um, uh, built around another non-religious or or non-Christian story of uh, a deity becoming human, and uh, that John reads the Jesus story into that poem, or, or into that sort of like poetic framework. I've never heard that before, true or false. Is there any substance to that idea?
1: Um, People have been doing this kind of thing for a long time because in much of the scholarship in the first two-thirds of the 20th century, um, the Germans particularly were trying to give a genealogy for early Christian belief, which didn't include first-century Judaism. Mm -hmm. Because if you were a, a German Lutheran, particularly in the Rudolf Bultmann tradition, then uh, the the idea of Judaism meant works righteousness, it meant justification by works, it meant a religion of blood and soil, etc., etc. So we've got to exclude all of that. And so at a stroke, you have um, made it impossible to do the proper exegesis of John 1, which would be from Genesis 1 to Proverbs 8 to Exodus 40 to those great Old Testament passages, which are then retrieved in a whole new way. And so, Baldwin and others had to invent the possibility, the hypothesis, that there was some other source, some non-Jewish source, which had existed, which said something like this, and which John drew on. Now, um, it is perfectly possible that in the ancient world, some people had written poems about this and that and the other, but it's so obvious that this is a deeply, deeply Jewish and Old Testament rooted um, thing. It reminds me of, Albert Schweitzer's famous line about St Paul when he made the same point that he said it's this is like uh-huh, somebody Who wants to water their garden going with a leaky bucket to a tap a long way away when there was a fresh flowing stream (laughs) right beside the gun you know here is the jewish world just use it i mean why not
0: that's good yeah the genesis one the the wisdom stuff from proverbs yeah it makes much more sense okay final one and this is just because i have you on the phone uh question from 1 Corinthians 14. When uh, Paul is talking about uh, women being silent and he says it's according to the law, as you know, like according to the law, uh, most scholars say there's not really anything in the law that actually references that women should remain silent. Uh, when, when Paul references that from 1 Corinthians 14, I think the verse is, uh, I think I have in front of me here, it is 34, 35, something like that, uh, 34. When he says law, what do you think he's referring to there?
1: Um, I'm puzzled about this because, oh, as also the law says, yes, it's the end of verse 34. Um, I don't have a take on that. Uh, it's possible that the margin of this, I, I'm using the, um, the mm-hmm. Nesse aland Greek text here. Yeah. The margin says Genesis, Genesis 3.16, which is, of course, about Eve following the fall. But um, I'm not sure about that unless it's, it is just conceivable that he means that when God has spoken, Eve has no more to say, I, that would be a stretch. I, I, I wouldn't um, put money on that, mm-hmm. but it is it is possible that he means that. I, I don't know. It's one of those points. Um, people often ask me, are there bits in St. Paul, which when you get to meet St. Paul, you are itching to ask him about? And um, This wouldn't be at the top of my list, but it would be somewhere up there, along with 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 and following about why women have to wear um, headgear and so on. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, really don't, I really don't have a take on that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I, if I ever discover something, I will email and let you know.
0: Deal, <laughs> deal. Uh, okay, besides 1 Corinthians 11, what's the other text that you're going to ask Paul about if you get a chance to, uh, to have this conversation with him?
1: Oh, I'd love to know a bit more what he actually thought might happen in Romans 11, because I'm quite clear that he doesn't think that this is going to be a large scale, last minute, sudden um, conversion of all the Jews who are around, etc. I think he is deliberately leaving it open. He's saying to the Roman church, God can do whatever God wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so don't write these Jews off. I think that's pretty much all he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but that remains controversial. I was just in debate recently, I don't know if you saw it online, um, with a leading Messianic Jew. We were together in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and uh, uh, Mark Kinzer is his name. And we hadn't met before, but fortunately, we got on extremely well. And uh, uh, naturally, he was taking a different view of Romans 11 to me. And those debates continue. So um, those are just some of a great many things. But, but uh, I, I would love to know as well just how much of Paul's poetry he actually wrote himself and how much he was quoting or adapting from um, pre-pauline christian poetry although paul is so early that pre-pauline christian poetry is very early indeed
0: yeah there's 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 not a lot of time for that
1: there's a few pauline questions
0: well that's that's good if if i ever get a an answer on those i'll make sure and let you know to clarify those but as of now i'll be waiting for you to figure that out and uh letting me know in your next book thank you very much sir it is an absolute honor as always thank you for the time and uh best wishes on your trip to new york in a few weeks And uh, I'm sure it's going to go great.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. Really good talking to you again, Luke. All the very best to you. All the best. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for
0: checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.